Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. Everyone say amen. Thankful to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Brother Allen, you could have just kept on going. That was a, that was a great word. Thankful to be here. Thankful that you're in the house this morning. We're going to... We're going to conclude our study, this series, The God of Deliverance, and if you'll join me in the book of Exodus chapter 40, we'll read verses 34 and 35 together. As Moses finished the work of erecting the tabernacle, the Bible says, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this morning we're just going to talk about being filled with God's glory. And you can be seated in Jesus' name. Filled with God's glory. There's something to be said about skill. There's something to be said about skilled labor. Now, it's one thing to enter into one's own field of choice, academic study, if you will, and successfully complete that course of study. But something that's always been amazing to me are those who are seemingly born with a particular set of skills, born with a particular talent, those who are just somehow adept to certain things, whether it be mechanics or engineering, artistry. We often, phraseology we use in, in, in at least describing this sort of thing, this sort of concept, is to say that it's a God-given talent or a God-given skill. A skill that is so innate or so extraordinary that it just seems to be something that has been given to a person from above, from the Lord himself. There are those that not only dream a dream, but then their ability is to take that dream and make it into a reality. Those that seemingly can see something in their mind and then craft what they see to write it, to paint it, to fashion it, compose it, coordinate it, or to build it. And with certainty, such was the case with our topic of study today. It was an inaugural undertaking. No one had ever accomplished it. No one had ever built anything like it. Nothing like it had ever been done. And to this point, to this moment, there had been no precedent yet. Upon the point of its building there had not been a place it would be the place that God would dwell it would be the tabernacle the place that the God of the universe 
would inhabit. It's, qu- it's quite powerful if we think about it. It's quite powerful to understand, to think about the concept that God, the God who created heaven and earth, the God whose throne is heaven and the earth is his footstool, the God who uttered his word into the deepest, darkest void of earth, an earth that had no form, an earth that was inhabitable and inhospitable. God spoke and framed the worlds just by speaking it into existence, and it became what he intended it to be. That God desired a dwelling place. That God that could have spoken anything into existence that he, he desired it to be, that God, when he came to wanting an abode, when he came to want a meeting place, he entrusted mortal men to build it. Saturated with significance, swelling with symbolism, full of foreshadowing, the temple was fashioned with the most spiritually important implications known to history. Though God, the God of heaven and earth, entrusted these mortal men to build a meeting place where he could meet with them, he did not allow carnal flesh to coordinate it. Every intricate detail was given. Specific material was instructed in its use. Exact measurements and precise placement down to the instrumentation and furniture placement within its courts, gates, and innermost places were provided to them. And to ensure its completion, the Lord gifted those men, those that were employed to carry out that task. This was no arbitrary undertaking. The temple was built to be mobile. The temple was built to be transported in a very harsh and unforgiving environment. And it was meant to be transported among hostile nations who were not friendly to the Israelites nor to their calling. The tabernacle was absolutely essential in Israel's successful traverse through the absolute unforgiving wilderness. And so before its construction could begin, God began to call. God began to call and to select men who were skilled. Exodus 30 I'm sorry, Exodus 35, record the calling of such men. Exodus 35 and 30, the Bible says, And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship, and to devise curious works, to work in gold and in silver, and in brass, and in the cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work. And he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. Them hath he filled with the wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver, and of the cunning workman, and of the embroiderer in blue and purple, in scarlet, and in fine linen, and of the weaver, even of them that do any work and of those that devise cunning work. And so these men were selected. They were hand-picked, if you will, by God because of their skill, and then they were anointed by God to carry out 
the task. However, it's, it's, it's amazing to me, and I'm so thankful here today that these two men, even though they're, they're the only two that are named in this particular set of scriptures, they, they are not the only laborers that were involved in the temple. I'm thankful this morning that they had what the Bible says an added skill of teaching others how to perform the tasks necessary to complete the project because there would be absolutely no way that two men or even ten men could complete the process on their own. No, the Bible is very clear. All had a part, but there was a problem. Exodus 36 and 5, And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses made commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. Listen, for, they, for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and to much. It was a problem, but what an amazing problem it was to have. All had a part, but hear me, all took part. Not all were just had a part, but all took part. So much so that a moratorium had to be placed on the offering, causing the people to stop bringing what they had in their heart to bring because they did what they were enabled to do and beyond. I'm thankful here this morning that God not only calls leaders and workers, skilled laborers with wisdom and knowledge that are specifically talented in areas that are noticeably seen, but God also calls facilitators. God calls givers. He calls even benefactors capable of supplying and providing the necessary funds, the materials, and the tools needed to complete the task at hand. Let me say it like this, very simply. God will use you if you want to be used. God will use you if you are willing to be used. I'm going to say it again. God will use you if you want to be used because everyone has a part. What a beautiful picture of the church. What an absolute gorgeous painting of what the church is and what it should be. If everyone did what was in their capability to do, if everyone did what was in their heart to do, if everyone contributed to the work of the kingdom and to the advancement of the kingdom, there would be nothing lacking. In fact, there would be an abundance and there would be too much to contain. And so can I remind somebody something this morning? Nothing that you do, absolutely nothing that you do for the kingdom will ever be in vain. Nothing that you give, nothing that you give to God will ever be arbitrary. The time that you spend, the offering that you extend, or the talent and the, and, and the, and, and the investment that you make, it will never ever be insignificant in the kingdom's economy because God will take note. The king does not overlook. In fact, the king keeps a record. And so I want to tell somebody this morning, don't back up. 
Let's just move forward. Let's give all that we can give. Let's invest all that we can invest. Let's labor all that we can labor and do what God has enabled us to do. And we can do it for his glory and we can watch the kingdom advance and grow and flourish in the way that it was intended to do. And I'll go one step further than that. We can watch each one of our lives be blessed beyond measure because you cannot you will not ever, ever outgive God. You can outgive God. It is impossible to outgive Him. And so I want to say it again. If you've been enabled to do something, do it. Do it with all of your heart. Do it as unto the Lord. And do it with your mindset that you're going to give to the kingdom. And so it was the tabernacle. In the Old Testament... It is replete with types and shadows of things yet to come. And the tabernacle was no exception. Every aspect of the tabernacle, everything about it, the materials, the construction, and even the people involved are symbolic in nature and point to a dispensational change that would occur. The tabernacle pointed to a very significant covenant and was a foreshadowing of Christ in the New Testament. Jesus himself was the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle. When John recorded in John 1 and 14 the words, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The imagery is as the same tabernacle that dwelt in the central part of the Israelite camp. One translation, literal translation of that, of that text says the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. The writer of Hebrews, in fact, uses the analogy of the tabernacle extensively throughout his writing to demonstrate the importance of understanding and embracing the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 and 11 and 12, for example, the writer says, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Because of Christ's sacrifice, his sacrifice was much more than that of the goats and the, and the rams and the turtle doves that had been sacrificed for millennia before. Because Christ's sacrifice was more complete and more perfect than any lamb that had ever been offered under the old covenant. The new covenant he established, the writer says, was greater and more perfect because Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice no longer is it necessary to offer the blood of animals for atonement and so the building of the tabernacle and the intricacy of its completion point to a better and a more perfect covenant the construction the completion and the dedication of the tabernacle point directly to the new testament plan of salvation and because of that new covenant we are now admonished to embrace it together. The writer of Hebrews continues, Hebrews 10 and 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, 
that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of such is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. It is here where the writer of Hebrews parenthetically sums up his instruction. In verse 21, he begins with his final reference to Jesus as being our high priest. Comparatively, from Hebrews 2 and 17 to Hebrews 10 and 21, he references Jesus' faithfulness over his own house as priest to Moses' faithfulness to the instruction of God in building the tabernacle and in the house of God. You see, the reference to Jesus being over the house in verse 21 strongly validates his role both as son of God and high priest, both his deity and his humanity. He is the son of God because he is God, manifest in the flesh, yet as high priest who entered once into the veil, not yearly, but one time, as high priest and as God and as the Son of God and the Son of Man in his humanity and his deity, he both is God and he stands in direct solidarity or in unity, hear me now, with the human race. In other words, he is both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He both sacrificed and he became the sacrifice. He was both God and man. And so that is why the writer of Hebrews says that now we can draw near with a true heart and in full assurance and then admonishes us to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. That word faith can also be translated to the word hope. And so if we look at it like this, in succinct order. In verse 22, the writer references faith. In verse 23, he references the word hope. And then in verse 24, he references the word love. You see, that's the threefold cord that ties and holds everything together. From the beginning, even until the end, it is hope, it is faith, and it is love. You see, genuine faith results in us drawing near to God. Genuine hope is the result of a steadfast allegiance to God and to the work or to the things of God. And genuine love then manifests itself into actions, loving actions to God and to others. Let me say it like this. It's what brings us to God. It's what brings us together. And it will be what keeps us together through everything that we will face. It is what ties us to Him and is what ties us to each other and is what ties us together in His glory. It is for His glory. It is His glory. That 
kind of thing is what brings his glory. And so no wonder the psalmist wrote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion for there, for there, the unity, the brethren dwelling together, connected by faith and hope and love. It's there where the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Can I say it like this? It's what built the tabernacle. It's what brought everything together. It's what put all the parts together. It was the unification of the people. It was the togetherness of the people. It was their willingness to serve. It was their willingness to be obedient to complete the work and to do the will of God. And so they came together. They heard the word of the Lord through Moses. Moses heard God's word. He stood on the mountain. He received the law. He received every intricate detail that it took to, to erect that tabernacle and then he brought it to the people and the people saw the vision and they came together and they said, I can do something here. I can do something there. I can work here. I can learn this. I'll do this. I'll be willing to serve. I'll be willing to bring. And they brought and they brought it all together and finally the tabernacle is in its erection. Finally, the tabernacle is ready to receive the sacrifices. Finally, they have their place of worship and it was ready to receive the priests as they would minister daily before the Lord. Now, now Israel has their focus point. Now Israel has their central focus right in the middle of their camp to focus their eyes, to focus their minds, to remind themselves where their ultimate protection and their provision comes from. It is in the house of God. It is the tabernacle. It is the dwelling place. It is the place where God would meet the house of God. It's in this culminating. It's in this this bringing to a head, if you will, event. A miraculous thing begins to occur. Exodus 40 and 34, we read it. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the Lord, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so let's take it back just a few weeks. The book of Exodus begins with a people enslaved. Under a tyrannical government task to build infrastructure for a nation that abhorred them. They labored in the land of Egypt. The book of Exodus ends, however, with a free nation that had escaped bondage by the mighty and strong hand of the God that they called upon. Once bound in chains, they now stand to witness the glory cloud of God as it descends upon the tabernacle that is set before them. A visible, a supernatural, an absolute manifestation of God's divine presence that would then be their guidance through the wilderness. Not by any means a one-time occurrence. Hear me now. It would be the staple 
of their existence. A flame of fire by night, a cloud by day. When the cloud rested, they stayed. When it lifted, they moved. It was going to be their staple. It was going to be the absolute essentiality to their survival. Hear me, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, his glory. It's why he did what he did. His glory. It was his plan. Redemption. It's why he orchestrated everything for his glory. You see, God had already made a covenant with Abraham. God had already spoken to Abraham and said, Abraham, these people are going to go down into Egypt, but they're going to call upon me. And I am going to bring them out with a strong hand and with great abundance. He told Abraham that he would rescue Israel and lead them to a promised land. He did it for their good and he did it for his glory. We see him throughout the book of Exodus. His work to rescue and redeem his people. And each time his explanations as to why he did what he did always surrounded his glory. He meets Moses at a burning bush so that Israel will understand that he is God and that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God who called Abraham out of the cur of the Ur of Chaldees. I'm the same God today as I was yesterday, and I'm going to be the same God tomorrow. You can trust me. He demands now Pharaoh to release his people so that they may go into the desert and worship him, thus rendering glory unto him. The Lord said of the Egyptian army that he would inevitably destroy with the Red Sea. He said this in Exodus 14 and 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. One commentary said it like this. When that happened in their response to these mighty deeds of salvation, the Israelites gave God the glory that he was looking for. As soon as they passed through the sea, they began to sing the song of the horse and the rider. In Exodus 15 and 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I I will exalt him. They praised him again when they reached Mount Sinai where they renewed the covenant and worshiped God for the gift of his law. And then they began the work on the tabernacle, the glorious house of God. This was all in keeping with his plan, all by his people, all his plan, and it was all for his Glory. I'm going somewhere De divinely orchestrated, absolutely and unequivocally intricately aligned God. God began to give his plan and it was obediently carried out. Let me say that again. He divinely orchestrated. He put all the blocks into place. Everything was already set 
but then it had to be carried out by mortal man and it had to be carried out in an obedient fashion that's what completed the temple that is what prepared the temple and God began to show his approval and his covenantal promise as he manifested himself in his divine presence as it descended upon the finished work hear me now the tabernacle points to another covenant it points to a better covenant it pointed to Christ it pointed to his coming it it pointed to his sacrifice for our sins but it also pointed to the church age and provided a very clear and concise picture of its purpose in the earth and its operation in the earth it pointed I said it before I'll say it again it pointed to New Testament salvation it pointed to us it pointed to here it pointed to now right where we are it has not ended God's plan is not over I said it last week I'll say it again he is not finished he is not done there must be a tabernacle there must be a tabernacle Hebrews 10 and 16 he said this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days saith the Lord I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Paul said it like this, what? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God and ye are not your own you were made, you were fashioned, you were built, you were brought about, you were brought out for a purpose. You were brought out to be his tabernacle. You were brought out to be his dwelling place. I'll say it. I'll say it without absolute, without going back on it ever. But we are designed... The writer said we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are designed and we are designated to be the temple of God. We are designed and we are designated. We are called to be the tabernacle of God to be his dwelling place. No longer do we have to go before a priest. No longer do we have to go before him with our sins in our hands and our and our sacrifice in our hands and stand outside the gate or outside the tent and wait to see what happens did he accept it did he take it did you do it like you were supposed to do it no now we are the tabernacle now we are his dwelling place now we are his meeting point but there is a stipulation there's always a stipulation. There's always, if I can say it in our vernacular, there's a catch. Now we, as Americans, we don't like to think of that. I, we painted God as if God is just waiting on us to do whatever we're going to do. And I'll meet you when you get here. No. No, there is no such thing. There's always a stipulation. Just as the tabernacle in the wilderness required willingness 
Just as the tabernacle in the wilderness required obedience, God still requires both. You see, from the beginning until right now, when it all began, as he knelt, just, just let me use my imagination for a moment. As he knelt into that dust and that dirt, into that clay, and began to fashion that man. As he began to form his ears and his eyes, and his nose and his mouth, his arms, his legs, his body. As he began to fill him with his spirit from that moment until now, God has desired a vessel. From that moment until this moment that we're in, God has desired a place to manifest His glory. From Adam to Abraham to Israel and now usward. A tabernacle, a temple, a torn veil, redemption, restoration, and a salvation that is made available for whosoever will. It was all done with you and with me in his mind. As he began, as he began to be able to form that man, he said, I'm going to call you Adam, but you might as well just put your name in that spot. I, I began to I began to form him. I knew you in your mother's womb. Before you were even formed, I knew you. And I have ordained you. And I have called you. And I have made you. And I have, I have designated you for my purpose. I know every step that you're going to take. I know every downfall that you're going to have. I know every diversion that you're going to experience but I have called you and I have formed you and I have made you for my purpose you were on his mind and I was on his mind from the very beginning that he began to speak into existence let there be light let there be light let there be animals let there be grass and he said but I'm going to form man I'm going to make him I'm going to intricately detail make him I'm going to form him with my own hands and I'm going to breathe into him my life and I'm going to put eternity in his soul. And then I'm going to call him. And I'm going to fashion him. And make him into what I've called him to be. Can I tell you this morning, in closing, I'll, I'll end where I began. You have an innate calling within you. You have something on the inside of you that is just trying to manifest itself. You have a God given ability and that is to be the temple or the dwelling place of the most high God. He has called you and he has called you by name out of darkness and into his marvelous light to give him glory and to show forth his praises and he has prepared you and chosen you to be a house for his glory and should you obey that plan, should you give your life to him today, should you just give yourself over to him today I'm telling you that he will he will meet you where you are and he will equip you to be exactly what he has called you to be because he knew you before you were formed he knew you 
He, he called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so today, you ask the question, how? All this sounds so good and so great, but you've not said how. How do we do this? How do we give? How do we do? Well, Let's start with repentance. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is his indwelling. That is what makes you the tabernacle of God. That is what gives you the ability to show forth and manifest his glory, to be filled with his glory, to repent of your sins, to be baptized in his name, to be filled with his Holy Ghost, and then to connect yourself to something greater and something bigger than you've ever known. Connect yourself to the body. Connect yourself to a church that preaches truth, that gives God the glory. Connect yourself and do what God has enabled you to do, and God will bring his glory. His glory will shine. His glory will appear. His glory will have its way in Jesus' name. Why don't we stand this morning? Why don't we give him glory? And why don't we thank him for the gifts that he's given us? Why don't we thank him for what he's done? And then cry out to him to use us however he sees fit to use us. God, we've connected ourselves to you. We have given ourselves to you. We thank you for calling us out, God. We're going to walk with you, Lord, and we're going to do your will. Let your glory, let your glory fill this temple, oh God. Let your glory fill this temple, oh God. Manifest yourself in Jesus' name. In Jesus' This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806. Or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.